Welcome to the MedTech Talent Lab, the number one catalyst for advancing careers and building high-performance teams. Sponsored by the Anthony Michael Group, helping companies secure in-demand talent in regulatory affairs, quality, clinical, engineering, R&D, and other areas for medical device, digital health, diagnostics, and other organizations across the U.S. life sciences sector. Here's your host, Mitch Robbins. Welcome back to another episode here on the MedTech Talent Lab. I'm your host, Mitch Robbins, and I am the founder and managing director at the Anthony Michael Group, where we help organizations across the life sciences, primarily uh, in medical device, digital health, and diagnostics businesses to build best-in-class teams primarily on the technical side. So anything related to regulatory affairs, quality, engineering, et cetera. And uh, on a regular basis, we're bringing to you best-in-class leaders from the industry talking about tips, tricks, and strategies, not only to help you build high-performing teams, but to also enhance your own career. And today, I'm excited to be joined by Ms. Topaz Curlew. She is the Vice President of Regulatory Affairs and Quality at a company called Apex Medical. Uh, Apex Medical is headquartered in Clearwater, Florida, and is poised to be a solution-focused company in the cosmetic surgery market and the broader medical technology sector and endeavors to provide unique and creative solutions for the ever-changing needs of its physician customers and patients. As far as Topaz goes, she has a storied career over the last 30 plus years. uh, She's had a variety of experiences in both regulatory and quality across uh, biologics and drugs, medical devices, and tissue and cell-based products. Uh, Topaz has had the opportunity to work for a diverse range of businesses, anything from very large corporations like Danaher, specifically uh, at Beckman Coulter, to, of course, rapidly growing organizations like Apex Medical. Interestingly enough, when it comes to formal education, she has her Bachelor's of Science in Medical Technology, but then not only pursued her Master's in Business Administration, but went on to achieve her doctorate degree as well. Without uh, further ado, Topaz, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Mitch. Yeah, I'm really excited that you're here. You know, we've had the opportunity to have some conversations prior to this uh, to this show. We're going to be talking about a, a variety of topics related to uh, mentorship, related to your own uh, experiences rising up through the ranks, becoming a regulatory and quality executive, and some of the trials and tribulations that you've run into. And uh, and I want to thank you in advance because I know that you, through your own experiences and through uh, some of the the obstacles that you've overcome, you're here today to share. Um, and pay it forward to those who may be following in, in similar footsteps and trying to accomplish similar goals. So thank you for that. Um, take me back, if you would. Let's start, let's start off the show and take me back as far as uh, your early years. Where did you grow up? What were your, your earlier years like? All right, so I was born on the beautiful island of Jamaica. And so, you know, the family jokes that I was born on the day that Jamaica got their independence from Great Britain. And so my husband jokes that I was born with a silver spoon because I actually got a silver spoon from the um, prime minister with my name engraved. And um, others joke that I'm as old as a country because I can't hide my age because whenever they have Independence Day and and whatever year it is, that's my age. But um, despite that, I was born in Jamaica. And in the late 60s, my dad decided to immigrate to the U.S. to get a, um, a graduate degree. And so he brought my mom and five of us, five kids to the U.S. to very cold Michigan to um, pursue his graduate degree. And so being, you know, 
in the U.S. for the first time, of course, was a shock to all of us. It was in the late 60s. And so, um, you know, going to public school in first grade every day and just meeting the the hostility, getting on the school bus, being teased, being called names for just because I looked different was was eye opening to us. So I remember asking my parents, is is this what America's like? You know, and my dad says, look, it's not fair. It's not right. But it is reality. That's the way it is. And you're going to need to figure out how to be successful in this environment. And so the advice he gave me at six years old, which I'll never forget, was he said, look, as a woman and a minority, you're going to have to work really hard. and You're going to have to be three times as good as your counterpart to be considered equal or to be given a shot. And so I think for me, that was my foundation of always improving and always working really hard to be the best that I can be and challenging myself, you know, over and over again to just be better. That's amazing. Well, you just said so much in, in such a little, all I did was say, tell us about your early years. And there was so much to unpack there. So five children. Five children. There's actually six. I have an older brother in London, but he was He's much older than us. So it was five children between the ages of five and 12. Wow. Where do you fall in the picking order? I am the, the last girl, the second to last child. Um, so I'm, I'm the youngest girl and I have a brother a year younger, but it was like I was the oldest. I took care of everyone. I was like the mother to everyone. Wow. And what a change going from Jamaica to, to Michigan of all, you know, of all places in the U.S. and the drastic changes. Um, both culturally and the weather, everything. It was cold. The weather, I remember more than anything. It was fun to see snow as kids and playing the snow, um, but it, it was cold. And just the whole, you know, late 60s in America, you, you you probably know what those times were like. It was just a shock to us all, I think. But, you know, we prevailed. You know, I like something that you said about what your father said to you at a very young age. He didn't sugarcoat anything. He basically told you this is what it is. This is how you're going to, you know, what you're going to have to deal with. And you're going to, you know, one way or the other, you're going to have to overcome it. And, and how powerful is that, that he didn't sugarcoat it and he didn't try to uh, make it a rosier picture. He told it straight up. And I think that probably helped set um, right expectations. Unfortunately, I hate to say it, you know, but he set a reality, a realistic picture for you. But I think that probably shaped how you looked at life from there on out and what you needed to do. Absolutely. And even my mother, I mean, my mother is a nurse and she worked night shift, put him through school. Um, I remember she did so many things she had never done before. She taught herself how to can, um, you know, to get fruits and vegetables over the winter to save money. She made grape juice. She made bread from scratch. She taught herself to knit and to crochet, to make, you know, warm clothes for us. And it was just amazing at how enterprising she was. No one ever taught her. She just read and figured things out. And so between her example and my dad's advice, my dad is a hundred, he was a hundred years old in November. Oh my and gosh. he's still um, strong, him and my mom. And I, I talked to my dad last night and he said to me, I really want to learn the computer. And I'm so frustrated that because of COVID, you, we, I don't get to see you guys so that I can learn how to use the smartphone better and use a computer. And so he was joking that everyone's teaching my mom, but she won't teach him. So they're even at 101, he still wants to be proficient in the computer. And, you know, he's learned FaceTime, he's learning how to text and he's just enjoying it and wants more. That's amazing. Nothing shy of amazing. Wow. Yes. So fast forward, how did you end up in the life sciences and specifically getting into regulatory and quality? 
So starting out as a medical technology and clinical laboratory science, of course, that's already in the life sciences. And mm -hmm. really, throughout my career, every job I had from my first job out of college at Red Cross onwards, opportunities came when there was something that needed to be done, and I volunteered. Um, so regulatory was the same. I was at a certain, um, I was at University of Miami and they had an IND and everybody hated putting the INDs together and doing the regulatory work. And I said, sure, I'll take it. I don't mind it. And it just kind of fell in my lap whenever there was something, regulatory is usually something that no one wants to do. And so when you were in organizations where they were just evolving and they hadn't gotten to the point of having a formal regulatory department, I would volunteer to do it and I would end up doing it. And, and so I don't see myself as much a regulatory person as a operations leader that happens to understand regulatory and quality very well. And so, yes, it's interesting. Why do you think that people, when you say not everybody wants, or most people don't want to be involved in regulatory, how would you, why would you say that? Well, it can be seen as boring. You can be seen as rigid. It can be seen as the police. Um, it can be seen as, you know, someone telling you what you cannot do and a barrier or, you know, regulatory is always saying no. And so what I like about regulatory is being able to do it, but do it in a way where you can get to yes. So you can find a solution instead of saying, no, we can't do this because, you know, it, it's not allowed. What are you trying to achieve? And let's talk about what your goal is and then find a way to do it compliant. So I think you kind of summed it up, but I'm going to ask you the question anyways. You know, a lot of times when you talk to, to regulatory folks, I usually, there's usually, I think, two ways of looking at it. One is the police of the organization is very black and white. You can or you can't. And the other that I think many organizations and many executives are looking for is how do we operate in the gray, right? How do we, how do we find a way to achieve our company objectives, but still remain compliant? If I was to ask you what is operating in the gray mean from a regulatory standpoint, what would you say? There is no black and white. It is 100% gray. There are 500 shades of gray because the regulations, they tell you what to do, but they don't tell you how to do it. So there are multiple different ways to get to that endpoint to achieve compliance, and there's no one way. Um, it depends on your processes and your, your technology and a lot of other factors, but there's no one way to get there. Um, but there is, when you, when you have it all together, it either meets it, the requirements, or it doesn't, but there's no prescription and no roadmap that tells you how to do it. So we had a, a podcast guest on a while back. Her name is Dina Justice, and she is the vice president of, of regulatory affairs at a company called Terumo Medical. And the, um, the premise of that show was just um, her experience as a female leader rising up the ranks and tribulations and trials that she, and obstacles that she's gone through and overcome and advice that she ha would have for those you know, trying to do something similar. Our show today takes it one step further. Not only are you a very successful female leader, but you're also uh, a minority. And I think that adds another layer of complexity. Um, and I say that respectfully, but you, you've said it yourself from a child at six years old to learn what you learned at six years old and to have the mentality that you need to have to be strong and be successful. Um, I have nothing but the utmost respect for, for where you are today and what you've accomplished. Would you talk a little bit more about it in your own words about, you know, as you as a professional coming up through the ranks and working for different cultures, different organizations, what it's been like for you, some of the things that you've run into? 
it's, it's always been a balance to say, okay, how am I true to myself and my identity and my culture? But at the same time, how do I blend in to the environment, to the corporate environment or the professional environment in which I am operating? And so for me, it has been somewhat of, I've gotten to the point where when you speak, it's okay to have an accent, but your speech needs to be crystal clear. How you express yourself, you know, being most in most environments where most of my counterparts as leaders were male, how I communicated had to change. And I remember being in a meeting once and a problem was laid out. And I think very quickly, I, you know, I can see the end of the road before someone finishes a sentence. And usually it takes a long time. I had a CEO that said, you're miles ahead of everyone. You got to slow down and let us catch up with you. And so I remember um, being in the meeting and there was this big issue and I, you know, immediately saw, surmised it, figured it out and gave, you know, my assessment. Um, it was ignored. And then about 15 minutes into the meeting, um, you know, the, the uh, VP of sales and marketing said the same exact thing. And everyone says, oh, that's a great idea. And I thought to myself, what am I doing or not doing why I'm not being heard? And so I studied, um, you know, how people were speaking and interacting. And what I realized was, even when you have an opinion, I, I, I found that I needed to sit back and listen and just wait and let every walk everyone slowly through the issues step by step by step. And when you get to the end, then they see the whole picture and then it makes sense. So from I made the comment to 15 minutes later, there was so much more discussion to walk everyone else in the room through all of the different variables. So by the time that person repeated that, everyone was on board because they had gone through that journey together. And so that is a constant struggle for me to slow down and really pause and make sure that my communication is in a way that is keeping up with everyone else or, or, or slowing down so everyone else can, can keep up with that. Again, a, a lot to unpack. So, so go back because I want to hit on a couple of these points. You talked about the uh, riding a line between main, uh, being true to yourself and true to your culture, but at the same time being being professional. I think is what you were saying. Talk more about that because I think there's so much in that. Yeah. So it's difficult because you realize that you are in a professional environment, and the important thing already being different as a woman and a minority is that you want to stand out, but you want to stand out in a positive way and not in a curious, speculative way where everyone's looking and saying, oh, what, what is she wearing? And just very confused. And so for me, I had to find a, um, a way of dressing that was mainstream and, you know, develop for myself certain hairstyles that are mainstream. And so Outside of work, I dress very differently. Um, I, I, you know, I even speak very differently when I speak with my parents. You probably wouldn't even recognize it with, you know, with our Jamaican dialect. But while I'm at work, it's I, I speak a certain way that's clear and concise so that everyone can understand. Um, I dress a certain way as a woman. I've, I've worked with other women who, you know, at mentoring them, I had to give them an advice. You, you are dressing in a way that is attracting attention, but that's not the kind of attention you want for um, long-term growth as a professional. You want to be taken seriously and you do not want to be a distraction. 
And so those are the certain roles that, that I carry for myself. Um, you know, men wear the same hairstyle every day, just about, um, I don't, women don't have to, women can do the same thing and it, it, it doesn't have to be a big deal. Right. And so I found one or two styles that work for me that are neat, comfortable. I don't have to worry about it. I fix my hair this way in the morning. I don't think about it till I go to bed. And it, it just takes away from having to worry about your appearance because you, you have a solid, comfortable way that, it, that you, you feel works in the workplace. Yeah. And, um, and it sounds like you found that balance of, you know, what makes you comfortable in a professional environment, but you still feel that you're being true to your heart and true to who you are. And, and then, you know, for lack of a better, I guess, um, uh, letting your hair down, so to speak, outside of the way, you know, right. And it's interesting. You talk about being from Jamaica and how you, you have a, a certain dialect with your folks, but the way you speak so articulately, you, first of all, you barely even have an accent to begin with. And just what you must have done to continuously work on your own communication style and, and continuing, continuously enhancing it in a professional setting. It's amazing. Um, you mentioned something about being in a boardroom and having the answer come to you fairly quickly. You kind of saw the end of the road, so to speak, and knew where this was going and, and put it out there. And, and then some, uh, a male, you know, another male executive said something similar 15 minutes later and everybody, it resonated it, like a light bulb went out off people and they thought it was great. And you're like, what happened here? I just said that 15 minutes ago. How did you, what was your process to walk through that to understand, oh, you know what? Maybe they didn't get it because they needed more context. And, and it wasn't necessarily the male-female thing. It was more so they needed to, to see it for themselves with a little bit more context before the solution was provided. How did you, how did you come up, figure that out? Initially, I, w- I was just, I was not happy. I was like, this is ridiculous. He didn't say this, something similar. He said the exact thing. And so at first, I was really not happy about it. I said, this, there's something wrong there. And then I started reflecting. I said, well maybe it's not because he's a male and and a non-minority, maybe it's my delivery. And so, you know, you always want to look inward and say, there's always multiple sides to every situation and there's no one answer. And so I said, maybe it's not just because I'm a woman. And so I started looking and watching how this person spoke. And I realized that what how this person did it was they would listen to everyone and then they would summarize all the good points and take it as their own. And so I said, okay, so how I'm going to work on this is I'm going to hold my good points to myself until the right time. And then when the time is right, then I deliver that. And I tried it in the next meeting and it actually worked. And so you know, you have people sometimes that are opportunistic and I realize, okay, so my ideas are kind of getting cannibalized. So let me hold them back and maybe, and it, and it worked for me. And just really looking at how I spoke and how I delivered. Um, I speak very fast. I struggle to say, speak more slowly and just, you know, build state the obvious. Sometimes for me, things are so obvious, but for others, you just have to state A, B, C, D, E, even though I'm like, why do I need to say that? That's so obvious. And so just learning how to state the obvious, set the stage and wait until the right time to to deliver a, a proposed solution, it, it did make a difference for me. See, and that resonates a lot with me because I talk very fast and I've trained a lot of people over the years and I've, and sometimes I've 
what I thought was common sense or what I thought was intuitive is not. It's not to everybody. Everybody learns differently. Everybody has different perceptions. And so it's really taught me a lot too. It's like, okay, what you think is just intuitive to somebody who's never seen it before or you know, has a different mindset, it, it might not be. But what introspect that is on your behalf to, because you could have walked out of that room and be like, this is crazy. A guy says the exact same thing I do and he gets all the credit in the world and now it's a great idea. But I literally just said that 15 minutes ago and you could have kept the chip, chip on your shoulder, not thought about it again and just gone to the next meeting and tried you know, the same process again. But the introspect that you had to say, okay, you know what? Uh, that might, let's look at, let's break this down and look at the interaction. What did he do differently? What information did he have at the uh, timing? What information did the team have at the time? What did I miss? What could I do differently? You put it all on yourself. That's what amazes me, you know, impresses me so much. And, and it's, I think a great segue into what I really want to, um, uh, talk to you about, uh, as part of this conversation is the mentor mentee relationship. I know that you have a lot of experience, very successful experience mentoring others over the years. And you brought something up a few minutes back about, we were talking about the way you dress professionally versus outside of work and working with something that's true to yourself, but at the same time, you know, comfortable and professional. And you said, you know, I've told other people sometimes, hey, how you're dressing, it's not that you don't look nice, but it's deterring from your ultimate goal. And it's deterring you in a professional way. Will you do me a favor? I, I want you to, let me ask you it this way. As a mentor, what do you think the responsibility is as a mentor? So before the, the relationship begins, you have to be able to, both mentor and mentee have to decide that this is a journey that they want to take. And, you know, I, I, I'll give one example for someone who said she uh, English was not her first language. She was from another country and she wanted to develop. And I saw the potential in this individual. So first of all, for me to mentor someone, there has to be that potential where you see something in them that you know that they have the capability to do a lot more and a lot better than they're currently doing. And so this individual, I saw that potential and, you know, she, she expressed the desire. And I said to her, you know what this means. If you really want to do this, you're going to hear things from me that may make you, it may not be pleasant for you to hear. It may be something that you may find offensive, but if you want to go on this journey, that is how it's going to be. And she agreed. She says, whatever you need to say or whatever you see, I want you to tell and so I need to establish that first from a mentee because you have people who want that, but then when they, you tell them something they don't want to hear, they get offended. So we started out as a foundation with that relationship and um, her, her grammar, her written skills, um, she was very sharp, but her grammar was bad. I said, look, you're going to need to work on your grammar. Here are some classes. Um, here are some classes on computer. Take those classes. Um, talk to her about her speech. I said, you have an accent and nothing's wrong with an accent, but your speech is not clear. Um, when you speak, I struggle to hear and understand what you're saying. Keep your accent, but take some coaching lessons for how to pronounce and enunciate so that you can be clear. She did that. Um, I looked at her in her dress and I said, look, you want to go to the next level. You need to dress a certain way. I said, even you don't have to go out and shop and buy a lot of clothes, but get a jacket, 
a neutral jacket that when you go to some of these meetings, everyone else has on a jacket, you put on a jacket, even though you're not in a you know, leadership role at this point. She did that. I said, you need, and then we worked through it over several years. She went back to school and got her master's. And then she went back to school and got her PhD. And now I'm so happy to report she is a, um, a, a researcher in a large university and, you know, is getting successfully millions of dollars of grant money. So she came in as a clerical person and ended up as a principal investigator in um, a research institution in the U.S. So just that relationship, there has to be that honesty and that openness to say, hey, your grammar is horrible. Um, your written skills you can do it and take some classes and you've got to learn the computer. You can't be in a role without being proficient um, with, you know, certain software and certain. And so we went through that whole process and I've had people where I could do that successfully. And I've had some that once the conversation got to a certain point, you could tell that they pulled back. And so I pulled back also. And good on you, because I always say you can't you can't want something more for someone than they want it for themselves. And so in your position as the mentor, good on you to not continue to push, you know, have such a passion for wanting to help somebody that doesn't necessarily want to help themselves more than you want to help them. So um, so to summarize what you were saying is really is just the setting the foundation and setting clear expectations that, hey, there may be situations where I'm brutally honest brutally honest to your best interest, but I'm going to be brutally honest. And I think you bring up a really good point there because not every mentor who wants to be a mentor or calls themselves a mentor is okay having those tough conversations. And so it's kind of like, well, maybe you shouldn't be a mentor then because you're almost doing a disservice by sugarcoating things or not bringing up the hard conversations. You're letting them think that they're ready and they're doing well. And you know, that that's not the case. Yeah. So the inverse would be that the mentee's responsibility is to be open-minded to whatever feedback comes and to implement and execute on that feedback because it's being given for a reason. Because it otherwise you Correct. wouldn't have that person as a mentor if you didn't trust that they're telling you, you know, leading you down the right path, right? Absolutely. What's your advice for those who are maybe listening to this show right now? Um, and they're recognizing that they, they're at a point where they need a, either a, a mentor or a new mentor. What's your advice as far as how to seek out a mentor? It's, that, it's a tough question. Um, and, and I'll just, Mitch, Mitch maybe de detour a little bit and describe. I was unfortunate, I think, in my career that I've not had a lot of mentors. I've had a few. But a lot of times I had to figure things out, read, study, and learn on my own. And so absolutely, it's great to have a mentor. And I would say, look at someone who you trust and who you um, is in a position that you aspire towards and, you know, talk to them, strike up a relationship and figure out if, if you know, it's a good fit because it has to be a good fit to you. You have to trust that person to communicate both ways. If you don't trust them, it's not going to work. You're basically given criticism if they don't trust you and you don't trust them. You know, I love that piece that how one person can say something that is seen as advice and feedback and another person can say the exact same thing, but it's seen as criticism. And it's all based on the fundamental trust. Um, and, you know, you mentioned that you've had a, a few mentors. Um, those that you've had, have they been your actual direct have they been directly involved with you at the company that you were working for at the time or were they outside of the organization? Oh, they were all inside the organization. 
and you took it upon yourself at the time to seek them out or it naturally evolved? How did it happen that they, you know, that you would call them a mentor? Basically, they, they took, they, they saw my capabilities and they, they thought that I had potential. And so they took an interest in me. And so it, it kind of just evolved from, from there. Whenever there were opportunities, they would send them my way. Um, whenever there was work, what, what you find as what's critical for this is volunteering. So when there is a project that needs to be done and it's almost extracurricular to your job and you volunteer for it, that also forges a lot of those relationships. So again, the whole volunteering, I've never had a situation where I didn't say, I'll try it, I'll take it, and just volunteer to do things, even though it made your workload a lot um, heavier, but it gave you that visibility, it introduced you to people, and it just really helps to, to, to propel your career along. And so I, advice I'd give is volunteer for anything. That, and especially if it's outside your comfort zone, try it. So our listening audience can't doesn't know this right now, but I'm smiling ear to ear. And the reason I'm smiling ear to ear and our audience that listens to this show on a regular basis is going to get tired of me saying this, but it's, it's the God's honest truth. I have interviewed executive after executive after executive. And one of the most consistent themes across the board for anybody who's hold, holding a position at your level or higher has said, Part of the reason I'm where I am today is because I took chances. I got outside of my comfort zone. I volunteered to take on projects that weren't necessarily my responsibility, but I, I saw it as an opportunity and it gave me visibility and it gave me, then because I was successful, it gave me credibility. Every single, I think a hundred percent has said literally a hundred percent and we're over way over between the podcast I used to run and this podcast. This is over 40 interviews at this point have all said that exact same thing. So there's got to be something to it. Yeah, I, I, I didn't even know that, Mitch. This is news to me. So. <laughs> yeah, that's why I, th- I kind of get goose guns because none, none of you guys that I've interviewed know that the other person necessarily said it. So yeah, there's def- for those listening, take, har- take you know, this to heart. If you're looking to climb the ranks, please take this advice to heart. Volunteer, look for opportunities, you know, get outside your comfort zone. You mentioned outside of the mentors that a lot of it has been you taking the initiative to, you know, put your nose to the book or do your research or, you know, figure it out the hard way, so to speak. You took the, the um, liberty to not only pursue your master's in business, but then to go on and pursue your doctorate degree in business administration. Why did you take that extra step? So... I felt, you know, back to my dad's advice when I was six years old, um, you have to be three times as good. I looked and I said, look, for credibility, it, it, it's something that I need something extra to kind of get your foot into the door. And, you know, his advice about three times as, as good or three times as qualified resonated with me. But also my husband was doing the program and he had decided to do it. And he said, let's do it together. So we actually went through and did the program together, uh, did classes together. And what I enjoyed about that program was that it was a very applied, practical type of degree. It wasn't a bunch of theoretical um, mumbo jumbo. We had professors that came in that were CEOs of companies and leaders, and they were the ones that were teaching us real life um, scenarios. The projects that I did were actually projects that I did in my job to improve in various areas. And so 
I learned so much from it and it, it made me so, such a, a stronger, more capable individual. And I, I'm glad that, that was one of the, the second best thing I ever did was get that degree. Um, that's the second best thing I ever did my, for myself in my life. What's the first? What's the best thing you ever did? Yeah. Huh? Marry my there husband. You there you <laughs> go. Marry my husband. <laughs> well, we're going to have to give him this clip, right? For sure. <laughs> that's a, yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, I want to wrap up by giving you an opportunity to talk about how you would define your leadership approach and your leadership style. There's a lot of people who listen to this in the, in the sector um, who are constantly, you know, always going through their own mind. Who would I want to work for? What type of leader would I want to be? How would you define your leadership style and what you offer your own team? It's really situational because each person requires something different. And my preference is to have capable people and let them do what they need to do. And so that is my preference. But if someone is struggling or someone needs support, I also am very able to jump in and give them the detailed support that they need to get them on their feet. So I would say overall, it is situational because it changes based on the situation and the needs of, of the team. All right. One more, one more question. We talked about some of the reasons people shy away from regulatory um, or perhaps quality for that matter. You know, 30 plus years in the business, those who maybe aren't necessarily in these functional areas, but have thought about the idea of possibly pursuing it. What do you like about it? What's what's great about it? There's never a dull day. There's never the same situation coming up. It, it's if you like challenges and if you like being stimulated and if you like um, change, that's all there. If you like status quo and you like to just maintain everything, probably not the best area to go into because there's so much problem solving and critical thinking that's required for quality. Um, There's system thinking, systems thinking that's required because you need to look at everything as a system. You can't look at everything individually because each subsystem has an impact on the next. And so if you like, you know, thinking broadly, looking at things from a system perspective, solving problems, um, this is this is the area for you. If you like more standard, um, not a lot of change, not a lot of challenges, then probably not a good a, a good fit. Topaz Curlew, you're an amazing woman. You're an amazing leader. You've accomplished a lot in your career that I commend you for. And I have a lot of respect for uh, who you are and what you do. And I really appreciate you being on the show today. Thanks so much for having me, Mitch. It's been a blast. Thanks for listening to the MedTech Talent Lab podcast. For more content-rich episodes, log on to theanthonymichaelgroup.com or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform.